WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is Impact's one-hour discussion of news, events, and organizations within MSU's community. And now, this week's Exposure. everyone, today on Exposure, I will be talking to people from the Student Greenhouse Project. We have four different members in here today, and I'm very excited to talk to them and introduce them to you. Hi, my name's Ava Marie, and I'm part of the research um, category of our project, so yeah. And I'm Katie, and I'm on the market team for the Student Greenhouse Project. I'm Philip, and I'm the um, RSO advisor and the a nonprofit corporation director. And I'm Matthew. I'm the secretary of the, the SGP, and I was vice president last year. Awesome. Well, do you guys want to start explaining what the Student Greenhouse Project is and what it does? For me, the Student Greenhouse Project is going to be a really unique and futuristic uh, structure that's going to really c- reconnect students, facility, and just people in general back to nature. Yeah, so essentially uh, the Student Greenhouse Project is a a student organization here at MSU and a a nonprofit uh, organization working to build the Biodome, which will be a geodesic dome structure uh, with glass that will house a tropical environment all year round, uh, available for students and the community to use for events, uh, studying, um, relaxing. And really that's, that's our vision for the Biodome. And I think the Biodome is going to be a great addition to campus because it's going to be in such a central location, hopefully. And I think it'll be great for the students, especially because with all the rising and mental health problems, people can essentially get away by just being surrounded by plants in this lush garden. And I think it'll be just a great place for students to hang out and study. Yeah. So why did each of you get involved? Uh, I became involved because I was directed by one of my advisors and I'm actually a freshman, so this is my first year with the Greenhouse Project, even though it's had several years in the making. We think that it's really gaining some momentum, though, and we are hoping we can get this done and up by in a couple of years, two years, a year. I first joined because I got a cool plant at participation. <laughs> and then I decided to go beyond that and actually check out the club. And it was so amazing, the first meeting, just hearing everything that this club was about and everything that we were going to build and all this interesting stuff and how it would essentially help students and the environment. I really just wanted to get involved. Well, um, actually, I, I started a long time ago when they were tearing down the old butterfly house. And so we had uh, a protest march and faculty letter writing <clears throat> campaign and so uh, it's been a long um, road to, uh, you know, take that golden promise the administration gave us and turn it into uh, the beauty that we're about to have, this, uh, this gem in the heart of campus. So, And I joined uh, my freshman year. I'm a junior now. Um, and when I joined, uh, my friend Jacob uh, told me to check this really cool sustainable project out. I think the reason I've stayed with it is that, like, looking around at, students today and the way we live, especially in the winter, we're so dialed into technology that we've kind of like put nature to the side in our lives. And uh, we need to bring it more center because of the impact that all the positive impacts it can have on our well-being, like our directed attention and our uh, focus. Yeah, for sure. I do think that people forget to go outside. Like, even during the summer, you know, you're so busy doing everything and you're like, oh, wait, but it's actually pretty outside and what's Mm -hmm. going on? So what specific things are going to be in the biodome? Well, there's going to be lots of tropical exotic plants. There could be even a few birds. We're going to have a lovely bridge. There's going to be a waterfall, which leads into a spring. We're going to have uh, many overlooks. So it's pretty much just going to be a great place to hang out and be with your friends. Also, to get some quiet away from things and feel like you're really with nature, even though maybe it's a blizzard outside. So I'm, yeah. (laughs) I know we're also going to have some classroom study areas for, 
I mean, different classes to just go in a nice environment to hang out in and also places for special events such as weddings or other meetings. So will there be certain rules about how you can act in the greenhouse? Because if you're going to have study areas, I don't know, is it going to be quiet? Like what type of atmosphere are you looking for? Well, during the week, um, during the regular hours, it'll be uh, free and open to the public and students can roam through and uh, staff and faculty can take their breaks and lunches there and stuff. And so that's the personal time part of the week where you get to be down by the pond in a little quiet space or up at the overlook kind of gazing over things or stopped on the bridge in the evenings. For the first part of the week, it's student study evenings. And then we'll like have each of the little turnouts and circles all through be places for study groups. You can sign those out. And, um, and then toward uh, Thursdays and Fridays will be student event evenings. And then Saturdays and Sundays will be public event evenings. So there will be um, sort of, it, it's sort of fixed by the structure of the t- time frame. Wow. Did you set this up, this time frame schedule, or is that other members? Um, this was actually based on the advice of the director of the Des Moines, Iowa facility. He said, basically, you never want to set up a situation during the day where people might be coming and expecting to go in and have it closed because somebody else has rented it. So you're mm-hmm. going to set those aside as time blocks and make sure the public open time is available when people expect to go there. So who will be taking care of the biodome on a weekly or monthly basis? We're hoping mostly students. We'll have uh, um, students uh, paid on like a, a work-study um, basis, and then we'll also have one uh, full-time greenhouse manager. If, you, if it is done by the time, would you guys be working there? Would you think all your members would as well? Probably. I would hope so. <laughs> I think it'll be a really nice place, and I'll use it a lot personally. That's awesome. So just a reminder, we are listening to WDBM East Lansing, and today we have the Student Greenhouse Project on. Um, so we already have a bunch of greenhouses on campus that some people know about but not always go to. I know we have more for research-based, but how is the biodome going to be different than that? Or are they competitors in a way? No, actually, um, except for a conservatory that the plant biology department has that has limited hours, and I'd like to say Lisa Murphy does a beautiful job, and she has this open from 9 in the morning till noon on Wednesdays for everybody. But other than that, um, it is all research greenhouses. They're very careful to keep people out of those both for the sake of the research and for pesticide use and things. So this would be a real public facility. This would be a come in um, 9 in the morning to 11 at night, sort of uh, wide open, free at the door space where everybody can find their own favorite place, see things grow and change. Um, Very different, very high accessibility. Yeah, and with that, we are talking about having a lot of variety of plants. Will there be some researchers that are in charge of that? Is it going to pair well with academics? Like if you are in the environmental degree? Uh, We wouldn't be doing botanical type research very much, but we would be doing social research and sustainability research. First, the facility is a showcase for green tech. And um, secondly, there's a lot of potential when you get people together in nature. um, Like I say, work-study students, um, people who are from the garden clubs around town or master gardeners volunteering. And so you get a lot of mix of people you can... You can find out how things could change society by um, having information move through people. And on the technology side, we'll have uh, solar photovoltaics uh, in the glass on the structure, so that will be harnessing solar energy. We'll also have a rainwater catchment system and uh, other sustainability features throughout the dome. And so we can collaborate with companies and and test their sustainable technologies in conjunction with our setup and uh, can become a sustainable engineering research facility as well. For sure. problem that I can possibly see with a dome is snow. So how are we going to combat the snow with all of the solar energy as well as keeping it light in the area? Well, it's pretty steeply sloped except right at the peak. And um, uh, it will transfer heat. And uh, the sun of the solar absorption that we plan to be catching all day will make the tip of the dome probably the warmest spot. We've got uh, top fans to drive that warmth down through the garden, but that would be um, more likely to melt off, and then it, after that it just slides the rest of the way down. Yeah, and is it going to be mainly lit up by sunlight, or do you see that there will be some solar panel-powered um, light fixtures in there? It will mostly be naturally lit during the day, and in the evenings we'll have uh, pathway lighting and, and uh 
kind of for an easy easy ambiance in the in the dome. To add to the location, I'd also say being in Shaw, apart from the other facilities, it'll be a lot more accessible for everybody, I think. So where is the exact location that we are hoping to have this being created? Um, right now, there's uh, some old, I think, tennis. There's a basketball court right now in position. Nobody, they're not really used very much. And um, it's right next to Shaw Hall. So this is where we are hoping to be. That's Shaw and Farm Lane. Awesome. Well, that's a wonderful location because then everyone passes by and everyone sees it. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be a very tall structure? You want to talk about like the size dimensions so people understand how big it is? Yeah, so to put this into perspective, the biodome will be half a football field in diameter, so 150 feet, and it'll be essentially uh, a hemisphere, so it'll be 75 feet tall. So it will kind of tower over, but it'll be kind of like a, a sparkling gem throughout the day and a, a glowing orb at night. Yeah, that'll be really cool. So you want to talk about what your part in this is. You guys have meetings. So what happens at your meetings, and how do you guys support this project and getting it done? Yeah, so we meet every Thursday at 6 p.m. in the library in the, the digital um, digital media lab. The d- digital scholarship yeah, lab. The d- digital scholarship lab on the second floor. And really at meetings, we, we're divided into uh, several different focus groups which work on different things. We have... Um, research, which Ava is part of, mm-hmm. and uh, for that we look at um, finding research that um, supports our initiative, and in that it looks at um, social influences from nature and and how uh, more nature and rich lives can improve people's well-being. We also have uh, marketing, which uh, focuses on our social media and reaching out to um, different media outlets. Um, basically improving our uh, our uh, footprint and who we reach. We have outreach in conjunction with uh, with marketing that, that helps with that. Uh, we have engineering, which is focusing on um, generating more detailed cost estimates of what the dome will look like, and uh, we're collaborating with uh, cost estimators at IPF to do this. Also, uh, really looking at the sustainable engine- engineering features and estimating how much energy we'll get, how the rainwater catchment system and, and recycling system will work. And so there's a lot going into that. Um, we also have uh, flora and fauna, which is exploring what plants and uh, greenery we want in the dome. And so all of these groups during meetings kind of work um, uh, for roughly 45 minutes. And uh, we have like announcements at the beginning and, and we like bring it together at the end. So can you guys, which group are you a part of, and can you talk about what each of those groups is doing currently? Uh, yes. So again, my name's Ava Mendoza, and I'm part of the research group. It's um, me, another Nathan, and then um, we have Zach, and actually another person named Nathan, and then we have our lovely director, Phil. So we all just um, locate research from very, um, how am I trying to say they're well-trusted, they're well-known resources, and they're going to give us that backbone for people who might not agree with what we're doing, and we're going to show them how it will improve, and it's positive for the future. So, yes, we're the backbone of this. That can be frustrating, trying to explain stuff to people that don't already agree with what you are doing. So how have you guys gone about that? Um, just as we were talking about the sustainability aspect of it, maybe people don't think it will work in the winter because how are you going to heat this? How are you going to keep all these plants alive in the winter? Well, it's basically a greenhouse. And just as he described, we're going to have the solar panels on top. We're going to have the rainwater catching system, um, among other green sustainable, um, inventions. So we're hoping it can come, uh, become completely green. Yeah, that'd be really cool. And I'm Katie, and I'm part of the marketing and now marketing and outreach team. So mostly throughout the year, we've been working on basically spreading our name throughout campus so more people can recognize us and try to get involved with our club and maybe reach out to other people who can also support our club from different areas around East Lansing, Lansing, or just other areas. So a lot of the time we were focusing on fundraisers so we could raise money for an 
um, in engineering analysis we have coming up. But recently we've just launched a Kickstarter, which has been highly successful so far. And that's just to get a basis engineering plant review done uh, for the biodome. So then we're really ready for more investors and to actually get this process going. Can you give examples of some of your fundraisers besides the Kickstarter? Some of my favorite are food fundraisers. So we've been going to like the International Center, Panda Express, Chipotle, areas around campus, and just trying to get more students involved with being aware of our club and also just helping in having good food is always a plus. Have you guys been hosting any events as well? Towards the end of the semester, we're planning on uh, doing an event uh, with uh, student life uh, in the Brody area where we'll uh, distribute plants to, to students and engage them uh, that way. Oh. We also had a really big uh, launch party for the Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. I and mean, We packed the hive in uh, Wilson Hall and um, eat some pizza and, and thought of ways to reach out to folks. So I say it was it was packed. Yeah. So what other groups are you guys a part of? I'm also. The... Oh, and uh, the student greenhouse. Project. Yes. <laughs> well, as secretary, I'm a member of the e-board and I work on various strategic initiatives. And so I'm always focusing on making sure that the groups are communicating with each other, that we're moving in the right direction so that we can get the project uh, hopefully done as soon as possible so that students can enjoy it. And so example of something I'm working on right now. So we, we just met with uh, IPF and we got our initial cost estimate. So with that, the next step is to do, as uh, Katie mentioned, an engineering review, uh, which is more a more detailed analysis, uh, actually involving reaching out to uh, contractors and uh, um, builders to, to really assess the costs and, and what it would take to uh, make this happen. So for that, we need to uh, raise around $15,000, which is our goal of our Kickstarter. So I've been working on that. And then as the director that oversees all of these branches of the Student Greenhouse Project, can you touch on some of the other groups and what they're doing? Certainly. Um, uh, Flora and Fauna is uh, working to um, go through a bunch of plants and choose. So we had a vote earlier whether we wanted one giant overarching tree in the central space uh, or whether we would like more little collections of uh, palm trees. The uh, variety of palm trees and little groupings won out. Um, we're working on having a good uh, down by the pond area with the frogs and the fish and the, and the plants kind of all thick and close. So uh, we have landscape architecture students who are doing a good job of trying to uh, put everything in its place to get this organized. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to group things on like soil requirements and things so we could have some variety of of the of the experiences trying to judge what sort of stuff's going to go up atop of the green roof uh, that won't get you know oversized um, so anyway so that's what Flora and Fauna is doing they're doing a very fine detailed um, example of you know how to put it all together and how to really raise it to an experience level where everyone will just come in with with awe yeah and what type of animals are you guys thinking of having there um, at this point it would be uh, maybe some little quail uh, maybe some hummingbirds. You know, you got to have stuff that's uh, going to be small. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, little gecko lizards. You know, uh, Robbie mm-hmm. Pruce of Pruce Pets said that they would be just fascinating for the kids, but too quick to catch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's important. Um, and and um, then you know, fish and frogs in the ponds. People love turtles. We uh, we at this point are using a a plastic pond liner. Um, turtles tend to dig and hibernate, so we got to make sure that. That isn't going to be a, a you know a complication, so that one's kind of not certain. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of sort of thing. Do you have fear that since it's going to be open to the community, that that interaction with the animals will be negative, or do you think that everyone will be supportive? And um, actually, we we expect it to be pretty positive. Um, we did a thirty-two person person survey, thirty-two hundred person survey, and uh, people were very interested in seeing more than just plants growing things moving around and being active and more fascinating and, and, and so forth. Um, we would like some uh, faculty, uh, which is part of what the research team is also looking toward mm-hmm. to do at the end of the semester, to might work with us to do a white paper or something on how to really augment the animal component to the degree that it would really draw people in and, and have um, a closer nature connection feel to it. 
yeah, I think it's definitely important to make it feel as real as possible, but also make sure that everyone's being respectful of the animals that are there because, you know, they are animals and, you know, they do poop. Blind Ben, if you've ever been to the <laughs> zoo and the thing you get to go and like feed the birds and, you know, you get pooped on I by a bird, that had is that never fun. question <laughs> and we were talking about it. So we. We thought about that. <laughs> yeah, with, with either ground quail, they won't be pooping on anybody, or yeah. hummingbirds, which are particularly small and yeah. nectivores. Mm-hmm. So the only thing they're consuming <laughs> is liquid sugar solutions with nutrients. Um, they're not particularly voluminous in their... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, to add to that, I think the interaction between people and the animals that we are going to have in there and just having real plants and maybe being able to come in and plant your own anything you want you know as long you're you're going to have you're going to spark that that natural um that natural drive in humans to be in nature and to be one with the environment so will there be any fruit plants in there will we be able to like pick the fruit and eat it or is that not involved Okay, actually, we, we definitely want to build the nature connection, and so we have clear plans for uh, fruit walks and sense hikes. Mm-hmm. So I, in, in fact, have at my own uh, time in the university over the years eaten little papayas that have been grown here on campus and small oh, wow. green bananas that look very green on the outside but are quite ripe on the inside. Um, I know we can produce coffee and cocoa pods. In fact, Again, Lisa Murphy and the Plant Biology uh, Conservatory, she gave me a cocoa pod the last time I was there. The dried seeds are sitting on my mantle. <laughs> so uh, we definitely plan to um, uh, make it a multi-sensory experience. Michael Hudson, who's the director of the Resource Center for People with Disabilities, directed us years ago to think in multiple sense modalities so that people who may not be sighted, which is of course what we're really working for is beauty and color and, mm-hmm. and all that, could experience it through the, uh, the aromas and, and the texture. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, like lemon trees or other plants or rosemary bushes that you can run your fingers across and just, you know, wave up an aroma that way. Mm-hmm. So we're definitely working on um, making it very experiential and um, growing things that people wouldn't see around here and having an opportunity for people to, you know, realize where stuff comes from. Yeah, I definitely think that's important. But since you will have fruit trees um, and plants in general, will there be like a store if people wanted to buy these products or would you just give them away if, you know, because there's going to be a surplus of them, I would think. Um, <laughs> I would expect that uh, going with the fruit walks and the sense hikes, We'll um, sample them. Uh, mm-hmm. There might be a possibility of getting to the point with enough yield of coffee to have mm-hmm. like uh, a little cafe and, and, and in the mix of the coffees, you could try the local one. Yeah. Um, overall, it's, it's not really targeted to be a production greenhouse. Right. It's, it's a full environment. So those sort of things will be scattered in a more natural fashion. Um, so we'll have a variety, but I don't know about really dominating yields, just Mm -hmm. um, experiential uh, multiplicity, lots of things. Yeah, that's definitely important. Again, you guys are listening to WDBM East Lansing, and we are with the Student Greenhouse Project. So you guys touched on um, mental health and also disabilities. So how do you think that the environmental factors also correlate with those? I think a lot of students are experiencing those issues now on campus. I am a freshman and I came to campus and I got really bad anxiety. And it was really hard being trapped in a dorm all day. So Mm -hmm. what I did is I went for a walk outside and that really helped me a lot. And I think having a place where you're just surrounded, completely surrounded by trees and animals and just in this one container, I think it would help students just relax all at once and be like a sensory deprivation. So I think that would be a really helpful thing for students in the aspect of mental health. Uh, Adding to that, um, the biodome will essentially be uh, the Caribbean on campus. So you step inside and you're teleported to this tropical environment. So it could be miserable outside. It could be a polar vortex like we had a few weeks ago, like (laughs) negative 10 degrees. But you're sitting at this outlook in shorts and a t-shirt with a frozen drink because it's so warm in the biodome 
and you're sitting under a palm tree, just fully relaxed, and it's finals week, and everyone else is miserable because they're not experiencing what you are. And so that's that's what the biodome will do for people. Well, you have different areas that are set by like location, because I'm assuming it won't all be tropical, but it could be. Right, we will. Actually, um, we were told to focus on basically one environment. Mm-hmm. The old butterfly house we're working to replace had like three different ones, an arid room. But um, when we had to choose one, we figured that instead of cactuses uh, and, and points, that the, the thickness and the growth would be the preferred one with the, with the tropical. So it's, it's going to be mostly warm and moist and, and uh, rich and green. Um, something from our research... There's uh, many different research stations going on in different forests in Japan right now, and it's becoming a really um, a big topic for actually changing the suicidal thoughts of people. They will walk into a forest, and all the actual the pulse rate of their heart, their actual their breathing, it will slow down, and they'll become. Um, they're they're becoming more at peace. And if uh, there's another study, if oh by the way that study was the Yukon. What what was the pill? Um, Yusotubu, nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, but. yeah. So um, there's another study where people were um, told to think of something that was dark from their past. And obviously, thinking things dark from your past don't put you in the best mood, the best physical shape, and. Um, when they were there was two different groups. One was told to go into a busy city area, and the other went for a walk in the woods. And obviously, what group do you think was better off at the end? The one in the forest. So, that's that's a main component of this. It's really going to help the mental, um, the mental aspect of students and faculty and anyone in general, and um, in turn, hopefully, their bodies. That would be really great, especially because it is focusing on the environment. So you want to talk about more of the environmental features and how that helps with all of this? Sure. Um, so uh, research over the years has shown that people love water environments. They, uh, they love um, complex highs and lows. So we've designed the biodome uh, first to be fully accessible to uh, uh, anybody with disabilities. Um, and they can go all the way from the pond, which is going to be below ground level, to the waterfall, 14 foot up and uh, or and up over the waterfall mm-hmm. uh, where, where the spring's up there and you get to the overlook. So it's kind of like a little horseshoe-shaped north ridge pointing toward the south so that the sunlight can come in and the, the sunlight can sparkle on the waterfall and the stream and the shadows waving through the leaves when you sit down in there. And, and so um, you can go up over the, the waterfall, the bridge over the canyon on top of the study lounge and it ends in the rock face cliff, which is the sound backdrop for the performance area. And so on a, on a nice sunny afternoon in February, when it's quiet during the day and there aren't any of the evening events, you could actually lean up against that rock that soaked up the day's sun and, and let the warmth um, kind of pulse through you. Wow, that's such a wonderful image. Like even just talking about it, you can imagine how beautiful this biodome will be. But with that, with all of the technology and the beauty that comes with it, there is an expense. So is MSU going to pay for part of it, or is it all just fundraising? How is that going about? It's all designed to be fundraising. MSU's contribution is the um, support and maintenance and the site, and the students are providing the drive and the vision and the contact and outreach that will bring in the money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I checked out your guys' website, and on there it says that the plan is to roll it out by 2022. Would it be possible to do this sooner? Is it the plan to try to, or is that just depending on when you get the fundraising? With all of the uh, steps in the university approval process for projects here at MSU, um, really that's that's a very accelerated timeline because it'll mm-hmm. take, we'll need to get uh, approval to plan first by the board, and then we can essentially get the brunt of our funding then. Um, after that, after we get the funding, we'll, we'll finally get like a, approval to proceed, um, and then construction of the dome and uh, all of its features will take around a year. And 
an important thing to realize is that with our plants and, and all the greenery, uh, the greenery will grow like over the years. Um, and so it'll start with uh, smaller plants than, than what it will be at its full maturity. And it's, I love how it's going to be all the natural process, but being someone that is graduating fairly soon, it is kind of sad that I won't be here when it is <laughs> going to be around. Um, but hey, we'll have to come back and we'll have to come take a look at it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So also another part of fundraising is I saw that there is, um, you can get stickers or t-shirts or all of that. So you want to talk about the various things you are going, giving out with the fundraising? Yeah, so through our fundraising, we've made a lot of prizes, per se. So for donating certain levels, you get different prizes. So first, you can get like a sticker pack, which are brand new designs. They're absolutely beautiful. I have them on all my things. (laughs) Um, There's also an aluminum straw, which is really great with the environment because you see what straws can do in oceans, especially with turtles. So there's the straw, there are t-shirts, new sweatshirts, also for very big contributions. We also have, you can get a brick um, that'll be on the entrance for the biodome. And also, um, I think for even bigger than that, you can have a personal tour of the biodome before it's unveiled and also your name on the entrance, I believe. So I think those are some of our steps for donations and really we appreciate anything. Being the marketing director, how else have you been supporting all of this and encouraging people to donate? Yeah, so I think a lot of our encouragement has been through spreading awareness on social media. We know how big things can spread. So we've been in contact with different groups. Um, One's a utopia group um, through Facebook, and these other environmental groups have really been helping to push our biodome, and while we have all been sharing it ourselves too, to just share with our families and other students. For sure. So um, we've talked about the fundraising here, um, but with that, people should know what they're putting their money into. So I read that it's going to last for about 70 years. How did we come to that number? Um, The 70 years was a minimum spec we were given by the university at the outset of our planning. Uh, Actually, the uh, likelihood that it lasts longer than that is very high. There are still conservatories over in England that have been there for a couple hundred years. So basically with uh, appropriate moderate maintenance, uh, we've got a a very likely century or so to go. Wow. Which will also mean having a new um, structure for MSU, something that kind of sets it apart from other places because not many places are like this. There's, There's none, I don't think. And... So that's also why we're going to keep our plans open for later use, and we're hoping we'll be the first one, and it'll spark change elsewhere, and people will take up the plans and have their own biodomes everywhere, you know. Are we the first university to be doing this? Do we know that? Um, um, yeah. There is the Climatron at uh, St. Louis. That was one of the original facilities built by Buckminster Fuller, and it is a large garden like this, uh, and it's run by the university. On the other hand, uh, ours is unique in the sense that it's a student initiative, and we hope to have it student-owned and operated, and it has the perspective, like I said, of making sure it's free at the door so it's a place where everybody can go and find their own friends and their own enthusiasm, and it's not just a commercial facility where you're nickel and dimed at the door all the time. Right. I think that's definitely a huge draw of this because, you know, if it's going to be at a college... Not a lot of us like paying for things because we're already paying for school. So having it free is a huge opportunity for everyone. Uh, Going off of that, though, if it's going to be going on for forever, how has the planning affected that? Because you have to plan, like you're starting something brand new. Other things that's made planning more difficult because it's lasting for so long. Well, we've had to think about how we're going to operate the dome, how we'll, how it will change over the years with uh, technological increase. So if there's this new really cool technology or research going on, then we'll try to incorporate that as we change the biodome over time. Um, but I think at its core, the, the structure and uh, its mission will stay the same, um, but our initiatives and and what we do like activity wise I think will change with the university and with uh, the world changing. Mm 
Yeah, for sure. It's definitely a cool thing to have here at Michigan State since we started based on agriculture. So I think that's a huge mm-hmm. point to continue to market and draw people to come here as well as to your place. Um, but having it being a student-run organization, what is one of the things that you are most happy you are a part of this? Like, what experience have you gained from being a part of this group? Well, I I can't pick a specific experience. I, I love going to getting together with all my members. Um, I like, uh, we just had a green green screen scheme where we had a, a couple of different organizations come out and we all just talked and, and told other people about what we're doing. It's, it's good to see um, all the different sustainable and just uh, environmentally friendly groups that are actually out there. So that's, that's probably one of my favorite things as well as just really hoping to see this through. I really want it to happen. So I, I love being involved and, and, putting my work towards something that is going to make a better future. Anyone else, the greatest experience being part of this group? Yeah, so I think being in this group has really, I think it, I don't know, it makes me proud because a lot of the other clubs, you're just doing activities and stuff, and this is everyone working together to actually make a difference on campus and working really hard to make this happen, even though it's been hard, but we're all really working together, and that's really great to feel like part of a team and actually making a difference. In terms of my own development, I really think the, the Student Greenhouse Project, uh, my involvement with it has has helped me mature over the last couple of years. I, I've done a little bit of project management, um, just thinking about like how much a project will cost and and really digging into the, the details of something. I hadn't really done that before, so that's something that I've gotten out of this. Um, as far as a favorite experience, I always love the homecoming parades in the fall mm-hmm. because we, we play drums, we're jumping around with joy, handing out flyers to the community, and it's just a great event for engagement, and uh, it's really fun. Again, you are listening to WDBM East Lansing. We are here with the Student Greenhouse Project. So how do you guys recruit people to join your guys' group? Really, anybody who's interested, we're welcoming, and we say, come on in and join our group and show us what you can contribute, because um, that's pretty much all I've been doing. In fact, just posting recently on um, the class of 2021, I had uh, two different people come and message me and ask me, hey, where is this? Can we still join? People always want to know if it's still available, and it always is. We also do different tabling events throughout campus. So we set up at a different location and have flyers and people talking about us. And we have a lot of information about our club. So um, students walking by, we can give them our flyer. And if they're interested or want to talk where they're um, to answer questions, and then they can come to our meetings. And I think in the past, we've just had a lot of success with that recently. So I think we're going to plan to do that more in the future. And besides just you know getting involved with something on campus, what type of features do you guys promote mostly about like why people should join? What type of experience do you get that helps your professional career? Really the biggest sell we have is that the students involved in the project can leave a legacy on campus. Just like think if you came back in 10 years and you see this this giant uh, glowing orb and you say, wow, I helped build that. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> this, this multi-million dollar project, I was one of the people that really pushed it and made it happen. And so that draws people in. I think also just just the uh, the idea that you could have a project in such proximity to nature um, mm-hmm. draws people in as well. A project pretty much bigger than yourself, you know, for the future. That's definitely important. But being student-run, we do have a lot of turnover. So how, as being the director, have you combated that turnover? Um, well, it is a little bit like running on water. <laughs> but the uh, the other side of it is that we definitely are looking for community members. We have uh, at least a couple on board. We have uh, board members who've been with it since it became a actual nonprofit corporation. And so what the uh, the complement to the student um, hands-on efforts and direction would be a sort of uh, stabilizing, vision-retaining sort of community group that's kind of backstopping the situation, and um, that gives it the uh, the continuity and the durability that it'll need, you know. So it's really in, in works 
to engage and integrate people. And from a documentation uh, perspective, we've really stepped that up over the last couple of years and generating uh, different documents that, that people will be able to see in the future because it's all digital now. Yeah, that's definitely important. Um, of the skills that you guys have learned, how do you view that affecting your future career once you leave MSU here? Well, research is really important, I think, for what I'm going into, which is environmental sustainability and science. And I hope I take with me uh, the people skills that I gained, as well as uh, sort of running uh, my own part of something a lot bigger than myself. I think being on the marketing team, I've had to work a lot with other people and um, strangers with businesses, and that's really helped getting me to be more outgoing and better at being well-spoken and um, all around. Uh, I'm planning on actually working in the energy industry for my career as a mechanical engineering and supply chain management student. So I think that having had this biodome experience really helped me. Uh, it helped first, first of all, helped me kind of realize that's what I want to do with my life. And then secondly, um, I've learned a lot about project management and uh, leadership that I can apply when I do go in the working world. And what are some things that you guys have learned here that is definitely going to affect how you interact daily? For example, you know, you talk a lot about the environment. So how do you take the things that you've learned about the environment and apply them to your life today? One thing I'd say is that, like, just like hearing all the research about the uh, importance of nature in our lives, I definitely try to go outside more often. I I uh, found that I exercise more often when I'm thinking about like the biodome and the impact it'll have because I it just really puts more of a focus on um, your own mental health and improving that. I think the biodome could could definitely do that, but just like thinking about other ways to to help yourself too. I think that's that's what I've taken away from it. Um, I've taken away that we have to just treat our environment with care and. Um, that that we're very connected, that everything is interconnected. And that's what I've taken away from it. Yeah, I think before this club, I never really thought about the environment on a daily basis. And now after being in this organization for half a year, um, I really think about it all the time. And I try to go out and just go in the environment on a daily basis because... I'm very grateful for that, and I hope that someday we'll have a biodome that I can go spend my time in, too. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, uh, feel and, and see that it, it's all alive and that we're all here together, and uh, amazing little things contribute and, and add up. And so the biodome has definitely made me think about uh, this more um, consciously, more thoughtfully. Um, we also don't want people to think that by building this biodome, we think this is the answer to the environmental problems, to just build a uh, sectioned-off area, and that's the nature we have, and you can have city all around it. That's, that's not the idea. The idea is that here's this beautiful piece of nature. Imagine if the whole place, the whole area around you was like this. So keep your environment nice so we can't have this. I think that's a very important point to draw because, you know, there's lots of dystopian books about a dome where there's people living in there. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a good idea to show that this is just what the rest of the world could be. Yes. Right. This, this is a stepping stone to nature at large. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Again, you are listening to WDBM East Lansing. We are here with Student Greenhouse Project. I want to thank you all for coming in. If people are interested in joining your project, can you rephrase when your meetings are and how they can get involved? Yeah, so we meet at the Digital Scholarship Lab in the library at uh, 6 p.m. on every Thursdays. Um, and floor. ways you can get involved, we have uh, uh, members in, in multiple different groups. We have uh, research into the social impacts of nature, uh, flora and fauna, um, in the dome, uh, engineering and marketing and outreach. So Really, anyone um, from any um, different background can get involved because we have such a diverse offering of experiences and, and work available. Mm -hmm. Besides students, how can community members get involved? Well, community members are just as welcome to come to our meetings. 
uh, see the students' enthusiasm, get a grasp on the plan and the vision, and then uh, we could expand our board. Uh, we could also um, work with faculty to do white papers and get some more uh, intellectual rigor to back this up. And um, there are just the same large opportunities in all the different ways that people have skills to, to help move this forward. That's definitely important. And if you want to donate, where should people go from there? Well, right now, um, the Kickstarter is really the, the place to help get us over the top. We have a $15,000 goal, and we're up to 46% in five days, seven days, something seven like that. Days. So um, uh, that would be very simple to just go to kickstarter.com and search for Build the Biodome. And that will bring up our entire um, write-up, a really great video, and then there's all kinds of donation levels. We are looking for the mighty 100. That 100 people who would donate $150. If you multiply 100 times 150, that's the whole $15,000 goal. And so if you're interested or this has piqued your interest, uh, check it out. You'll see more. Uh, you'll see the faces of everyone moving this forward. And, and, and you'll have the opportunity to, to see how you'd like to work in. So the Kickstarter ends on April 7th. What do people want to donate past that time? So uh, to donate once the Kickstarter is over, we do have a sgpbiodome.com, a, a nice website with all kinds of information. And there is an Amazon Smile um, link up. There are direct donations uh, through PayPal or credit card. So we can be supported um, however works uh, for you if you're enthused about the project. Um, so uh, Kickstarter and then just uh, sgpbiodome.com for all kinds of information and opportunities to support the Greenhouse Project. Awesome. And if we want to follow along and find out what the progress you guys have made, where should we look for that? Instagram, Twitter, um, pretty much any platform of social media you can look us up. Also from our website, you can you can sign up to be on our mailing list. And uh, what that entails is that every other week or so, you'll get our newsletter, which is uh, what's what's really happening uh, on a week-to-week -week basis in the club. And we do have a, a Facebook site. Uh, it's called um, uh, Biodome colon uh, the Student Greenhouse Project. I believe that's uh, SGP MSU. But anyway, you can find us on Facebook as well. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much for coming in. I hope we could do get to spread the word here just by talking to you guys here. Me too. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Sci-Files. This is a part of the Exposure series, and my name is Chelsea Boudin, and I'm a graduate student here at Michigan State University studying biomedical engineering. And I am her co-host, Daniel Puentes, a graduate student here at Michigan State University studying physics and astronomy. A little bit about Sci-Files is that we are both graduate students, and we want to interview graduate students as well over here at Michigan State University. The point of this is so that everyone around Lansing and East Lansing can understand what's going on at MSU. A lot of people don't have much of a connection to MSU, and we were hoping that we could help reach our audience and everyone else out there to, so that people can feel connected to us. As Chelsea mentioned, the goal is to help the community feel much more engaged with the scientists that are resident here in both Lansing and East Lansing. So we thought that this would be a wonderful idea to help the community feel connected to us. Without further ado, I would like to welcome Jennifer Watts. Hi, guys. Hi, Jen. So, Jen, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing here at Michigan State University? Awesome. Well, I want to thank you guys for having me, first of all. I'm really excited. So, what brought me to MSU? Yeah. So, I did a summer research opportunities program here at MSU in 2015. I fell in love with the campus. I really liked the research that was going on here. So it was um, it was important for me to apply here. And once I applied here, I got accepted. I knew where I wanted to go. Great. And what are you doing now in regards to your research? Yeah, so I'm a Ph.D. candidate. I just finished my comprehensive exam in the fall. 
Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, at, at MSU, I work in Dr. Amy Ralston's lab, where I understand the effects of Zika virus in um, Zika virus infection in early development. So um, Zika virus um, has been in a news cycle as of lately, and really we want to understand the connection between why this virus is causing these effects in, in babies. Um, so, yeah, that's my research. Okay. And I would definitely agree that that has some very societal, immediate societal impacts to yeah. Uh, what we're facing today in today's day and age. Yeah, both Danny and I are from Miami, so I remember whenever this outbreak occurred that a lot of people were worried about getting bitten by mosquitoes and things like that because yeah. I recall that they were saying that pregnant women should be very weary about that. Uh, could you explain what it would do to these pregnant women if they were to get bitten by a mosquito with Zika? Yeah, so that's very interesting because we are actually in our lab looking at a different aspect. Yes, uh, the Zika virus can be transmitted through a mosquito, but it can also be sexually transmitted. And that's why we have this paradigm where the uh, Zika virus can infect really early, uh, potentially after conception. So yeah, so um, really uh, the focus is on pregnant women. <clears throat> And the mosquito biting the women, it transmits uh, to the fetus and then causes those issues such as uh, neurological uh, defects or malformation of the head, which is called microcephaly. Um, but in early pregnancy, we think it could be more damaging and cause miscarriage. Okay, so wow, it's worse to catch the virus in the early stages of a pregnancy than it is in the later stages. Yeah, that's, that, really interesting. that's what that's what we're really trying to find out, and whether it's time dependent or not. So hmm. I'm assuming that you guys infect different fetuses or embryos or something like that with Zika and see how it affects the development after that. Yes. Yeah, so we use a mouse model um, to understand that. So what we do, uh, we use this cool technology that we can grow fetuses in a dish and we can add virus to it that way so we don't have transmission of the Zika virus from mouse to mouse. Oh, wow, yeah, because that's that's an interesting point that you're bringing up right there because one thing that I could understand being difficult is preventing the transmission of Zika through sexual intercourse rather than uh, artificially... Yeah. Putting it into the dish. Exactly. Exactly. And another thing that I kind of want to add to this is that the Zika virus, what we know is that it can uh, reside in male and female reproductive tracts. So it can pretty much infect sperm and it can infect uh, female eggs, mature eggs. So with that knowledge now that we have, is that we can potentially have like an additive effect of the Zika virus once fertilization occurs. And so that's why we really want to figure out what's happening in a dish um, just because we don't want to um, get too complex because we really don't, we really can't pinpoint what's actually happening in sexual transmission that's, uh, that's causing these effects in fetuses. One question that I'm curious about now, let's uh, take a Quick step yeah. back and think a little bit larger. Does Zika work a lot like other viruses where once you have Zika, it stays in your system forever? Or does it eventually leave your system? Yeah. So um, what is known is that it eventually leaves our system. So uh, according to the CDC, uh, what people what is suggested is that you wait about two to three months uh, before you try to conceive if you are um, if you have Zika virus detected in your body. So how does your body get rid of the Zika virus? Can you use that way to help the embryos or fetus when they're developing as well? I think that's a really interesting point and we actually don't know. One thing that we uh, could suspect is that our blood regenerates um, so it's flushing out. Um, and filtering out that that those virus infected blood cells, um, that could be that's one hypothesis that we have, but we really don't know, and that that's something that some researchers should find out. So the fetus, 
is not strong enough to actually get past it. And is is that baby born with Zika? Um, I'm actually not sure. Um, it can go either way. Like I said, um, I don't think that has been studied, so I'm not sure about that answer. Well, maybe one of question. our listeners. Maybe one of our listeners can uh, figure out that issue. (laughs) Maybe, yeah, definitely. So I was also wondering, you were talking about putting the Zika virus in the embryo. Have you put it in the sperm versus the egg and seen the difference of of which one was infected? So that is actually part of my research plan. We want to infect sperm, we want to infect eggs, and then we want to infect both to see what happens and see if development occurs normally or if we still have um, those issues with the fetuses after they grow up. Wow. Are you guys looking at ways to help fix that after? Like if, let's say, that was better one versus the other, are you trying to see like how you can maybe fix with vitamins or something Yes. Like that? Yeah, so, um, so yeah. So the last part of my project is to really understand how Zika virus enters the system because that hasn't really been understood yet. So what we're using is these um, these pharmacological inhibitors or just inhibitors uh, that will stop the infection of Zika virus. So one has already been shown to do that in other cells with Zika virus. However, we don't know how really that uh, works in in fetuses. So that is actually part of my uh, research, and uh, hopefully we'll get some some good results from that. So what I'm curious now about is what role do you think Zika virus will play in the future? Do you think we'll come closer to ridding of this disease, or do you think uh, there's a possibility of mutation? Do you th- I wonder how Zika might be in the next 20 years better? Yeah, that's really hard to uh, really hard to say. But what we know from history, you know, we have to go back to kind of look forward. Um, what we know in history is that there's different strains um, where they originated from. Um, I think the Zika virus was first discovered in 1947 in Uganda. So it's been discovered for a while now. So what we can do, since we know that um, it's mosquito-borne and is sexually transmitted, we can actually do some intervention before someone gets infected. So wearing repellent, staying away from climates that are conducive to mosquito reproduction. You can wear, like, we have nets and things like that. Also in sexual uh, transmission, we can make sure that the virus is cleared from the body before we start to conceive again so we don't have those issues. But hopefully, with my research, if we do still see virus in fetuses, uh, those inhibitors that I talked about a little bit earlier, we can use that as a therapeutic. So I'm, I'm kind of curious in the same line as Zanny about the future of this. I was mm-hmm. wondering, um, I haven't heard about Zika for years, like since I was an undergrad, mm-hmm. and did it go away? Is it getting better because people can process it? Or is it getting worse because it's still going around with the mosquitoes and whatnot? So it hasn't been in a news cycle because I think we've kind of, at least in the United States, we have it contained. And also we have those preventative measures that we have. But I think it's still an issue. It's just not happening where... where we are right so yeah uh, yeah, exactly so we don't have necessarily those big mosquito problems or the the type of mosquitoes that carry this virus don't actually live here so i think it's still a world issue but it's just not happening in close proximity so that's probably why we don't see it there and and there's some societal context to that as well so jen Thank you for sitting down with us. The last thing that I would like to talk about is what advice would you give to young scientists in the community right now that are unsure about what they want to do or if science is even for them? Thanks a lot, Chelsea, for sharing that with us. So we're nearing the end of this interview. Thank you so much, Jen, for taking part of it. 
as parting words, what last advice would you give to different people in our community right now that have an interest in science but are not too sure about whether or not they want to pursue it in the future? First advice is kind of just go for it. I mean, there's always times where you can stop and and reevaluate. But also for people who are kind of going out into careers in science, the best advice that I got was that the job that you want is not made yet and you have to make it. So I thought that was very, very powerful. And also that's going to stick with me forever. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jen, for your time. Thank you guys for having me. This is really awesome, and I'm glad I can share some knowledge with uh, other people. Absolutely, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in this week. Until next time, this is Sci-Files. Sci-Files.